You know, I used to joke about, um, we had a bookstore in Buford at St. Helena's, and I'm sorry about the cough drop, I've got some allergy issues, uh, but there was, there, were these, there was this book called Have a New Kid by Friday, and then the same authors put out Have a New Husband by Friday, and I waited and waited, and there never was Have a New Wife. Um, <laughs> by Friday, and so I quickly yanked those off, because, I mean, wouldn't it be great if that kind of stuff worked? Uh, if there are just a couple things you could do in a week uh, in order to, um, to make your kids and your spouse uh, more like you. <coughs> oh, gosh. All right. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, save us from ourselves. Save us from self-righteousness. Uh, give us r- a right perspective about who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Uh, and rightly orient us in the world in which we live, that we may be able to see a thing for what it is. Uh, and Lord, um, call it out justly. And Lord, uh, let us always remember that you uh, are not finished with us, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we might not lose hope, but ever keep our eyes upon you, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> Stephen has just died. And we began the eighth chapter. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the religions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The word of the Lord. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, there's, every once in a while we'll have a gospel reading which couldn't be less gospelly, and I'll say it, and I'm like, thanks, Peter. And I'm like, yeah, right. Um, uh, but uh, this is not one of the sunnier passages of Scripture um, that you'll ever read, um, but we have this man named Saul of Tarsus who comes on the scene, and Saul's a pretty big deal. Uh, Saul is uh, brilliant. Uh, Saul grew up on the Mediterranean. He grew up in Tarsus, which is now modern-day Turkey at the time of Alexander the Great. Tarsus was the biggest and most metropolitan and the main go-to place in all of Asia Minor. And so uh, it had a real reputation. And uh, Saul called Paul, and um, I don't want to lose the whole fact that when God intervenes in his life, uh, he becomes known more as Paul, Uh, but what you ought to know is that he was actually probably called Paul before his Damascus experience. It was not unusual at all. Paul was a Roman citizen on his dad's side. Doesn't that sound kind of, I'm a Roman citizen on my dad's side. And so he was a Roman citizen, and it was not at all uncommon for Roman citizens, especially Greek-speaking Jews, uh, and Greek was actually probably Paul's first language, Hebrew being a second language, uh, but a Hebrew nonetheless. And uh, it was not uncommon for, um, for people in Paul's demographic to have both a Hebrew name and a Greek or Latin name. And so when uh, uh, Saul and Paul, he would have answered to both. They would have been totally interchangeable. But I don't want to take away from the fact that he does become known as Paul. But in fact, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Paul's missionary journeys, which we're going to get to in 2018 uh, at this rate. So as we, as we look at Paul's missionary journeys, who was he ministering to in the Mediterranean world? Greeks. Greeks. Romans. And so Paul 
was a, a much more apt name for him uh, to get in and, and to mingle with them because Saul would have immediately been a brand on him saying, okay, this guy's a Hebrew, which of course he was, uh, but the fact that it was Paul made it seem like, okay, well, maybe he can, he can speak our language, both literally and philosophically. And so uh, Paul, uh, after about Acts 13, uh, Saul basically becomes Paul at that point. He's Paul uh, throughout, even to the point that the other apostles refer to him uh, as Paul. There's some idea that uh, we know that Paul is single at this point, but we don't know whether he's been widowed uh, or whether uh, he's been a single man his entire life. Uh, we know that, I think I told, who was telling me that the other day that... Um, we were talking about Paul, oh, it was in, in uh, Sunrise Centers. Somebody was saying something about Paul, how somebody so unsightly, uh, because he even by his own admission, it was not much to look at, it was not much of a preacher, and they kind of, but they didn't know it, but they were sort of basically drawing the parallel between Paul and me, and uh, I really didn't appreciate that, uh, that but uh, nonetheless, uh, Paul was not uh, a very attractive man by his own admission, nor did he come in great power. In fact, in the church in Ephesus, there was a group. There were groups starting to splinter off because some were sort of like, "I'm with Paul," and others said, "I'm with Apollos." And Apollos was a much better preacher than Paul. He just was. He was a better preacher than Paul. And some people will ask, "Well, can pre is preaching something that can be learned?" Yes and no. I do think that God, uh, as the scriptures tell us, endows certain people with certain gifts. And one of those gifts is preaching. Now, I find it very curious that another gift that the Holy Spirit gives is the gift of administration. And yet no one even blinks when someone says, you know, administration just might not be your gift. And everyone's like, yeah, but if you say, you know, preaching just might not be your gift, it's like you've just pushed their grandmother down the steps. It's like the worst thing that you could ever say, because indeed, those who are ordained are surely called to preach. But what I would say is that God uses people to reach different people in different ways. And so there are people who are really great preachers. Uh, um, I won't name names of people who have preached at the Advent, but some people are just sort of like, they were speaking my language. I was on their wavelength. And others are like, that wavelength was somewhere around the orbit of Mars. Literally. And I just, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't relate. I couldn't connect. And then there are others who simply, like, for instance, from a technical perspective, do you want to know who's a really bad preacher? Billy Graham. From a technical perspective, Billy Graham, so if you were to sort of take, if you were in a preaching class and you were to dissect the sermon, you would think, it's not that good. And yet, and yet, he's really good. Right? Why? Because God has made him good. And God has chosen him to preach to people. And, uh, and what it's illustrative of is this whole idea in the book of Acts, and indeed the entirety of the scriptures, is that, yes, you're God's chosen instrument in the church, whether you be a preacher or whether you be something else, but it's God that begins to ground... Uh, uh, plow up the heart in order for the seeds to be able to take root. And so that's good news and that the pressure's off. All right? The pressure is off. And yet here in Acts chapter 8, the pressure is on. So Saul begins to ravage the church and a great persecution breaks out and everybody gets out of town except two, the apostles. They stick around. Now this is a very different move than when we saw the disciples in the upper room. Jesus is crucified, one goes to the cross and actually sees him die. Everybody else is headed for the hills. 
All right, even one of his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, great, great passage in the Bible, remember? The guy who gets someone, grabs hold of his tunic, and he just runs naked, right? He's the streaker in Jerusalem. He's off to the races. He runs away naked and heads for the hills. And everybody else is huddled up for fear in the upper room. And, uh, but now, certainly there are those who have left, uh, but these same disciples who were huddled up in the upper room, now apostles for the most part, stay. They stay knowing what they're about to get into. And they buried Stephen, and they wept over him uh, because, uh, one, his testimony and his witness uh, was so strong and powerful. One of the things that uh, I experience often in the church is if you have somebody in the church, whether it be the local church or the church at large, that is such a powerful witness for the Lord, there's this great fear if they die or if they retire, there's no one there to take their place. And that almost always happens uh, in rector search processes. So at one point in time, um, to give an example, Truro Church in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, is a very large church, and a guy named John Howe was the rector there. And John Howe became the bishop of Central Florida, and he left, and everyone thought, we're doomed. We're doomed. We'll never find another John Howe. And then what happened? They found Martin Menz. And 10 years later, when Martin Menz left, what did they say? We're doomed. We'll never find. So, I mean, that's the way that it feels. So it's understandable that people would think, golly, we've just lost one of our most powerful witnesses, not just, uh, again, that, that dynamic um, uh, combination of Stephen, who was great in preaching, but also compassionate and loving, a little bit what I talked about in the sermon this morning, and now he's gone. And this guy, Saul, is crazy. I want you, I don't think that we actually get a good understanding of just how bad Saul was. Now, I mentioned that Saul may have been, I think Saul probably was married before, uh, simply because of the way that he talks about marriage. And he talks about it in such a way that you're like, my man was married. Um, uh, he knows exactly uh, what he's talking about. So I think that he was married, but now he's single. And Paul is right. Like when you're single and in ministry, the sky's the limit. You can do anything, right? I mean, I mean even singleness in general, like if, if you're single, if you, like, it's two in the morning, and I want to go to Southside and get falafel. Like you just roll out of bed, and you go down to Southside and get, no one's going to say, if I got to bed at two in the morning, Lauren would be like, where do you think you're going? <laughs> I got falafel. Falafel yourself back in bed, you know? <laughs> you got work in the morning. Um, so, I, I mean, Paul was really, free. I mean, when he's an apostle, it's great news that he's freed up to travel all over the world. When he's not, this is bad news. He's got so much time on his hands that the extent of the persecution is really hard to grasp because we see that... Um, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Uh, there was no Bill of Rights. And Paul was literally entering homes and tearing families apart. He was kidnapping. And so vicious was he. Where was he going when God intervened on the road? And where is Damascus? Nowhere near, it's in Syria, that's right, nowhere near Jerusalem. 
right? It's actually beyond the political jurisdiction of the, like, it's a total po different political entity. So on his way to Damascus before he gets uh, kidnapped, I mean, before he gets, God intervenes, he's actually going to Damascus to kidnap Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. This is not a nice guy. Right? I mean, if you can imagine Paul walking in the middle of the night and taking moms and dads while their children are screaming, why are you taking my mommy and daddy? And he doesn't give a thought to it. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Right? This is like a very scary movie. Right? There, there's nothing that will stop him. I mean, at the point that he sits there and he holds the coats and watches someone get stoned to death and he looks on with approval. I'm a smiling, you know, this is, this is the right thing. So he has this crazy skewed sense of justice, but he's also brilliant. He's brilliant. In fact, at a young age, he was sent to Jerusalem for schooling. Tarsus actually had an amazing university, but to be schooled in, in the Hebrew tradition, he went, and the name of his teacher was Gamaliel. Remember we talked about him? He was the one who said, if this is of the Lord... There's no stopping it. If it's not, it's going to fizzle out. And so if only Paul had had the generosity of his teacher, uh, but he didn't. Uh, in fact, uh, his militancy uh, knew no end. And so when we talked about the persecution of the church, as we did last week, just this past week in northern Nigeria, um, some armed Muslim men entered some churches and 31 Christians died. Um, that was just last week. Um, and so we, we hear about Paul, and again, we think it's so far removed from the reality of our day uh, when there are a lot of Sauls of Tarsus walking around the world today who think what they're doing is absolutely in the right. They're convinced it's the right thing to do. And so we pray for them as we did as they were for Paul that God would actually intervene in his life. And it's very funny, we'll get to it in a, uh, in a couple weeks, but when, um, but when God begins to speak to the church and say, Saul, now Paul, uh, is he's a Christian now. And they're like, yeah, right. Who is this? God? Are you sure? Because he was so out of control. But to give an idea of Paul's own feelings about himself, how did Paul view himself? Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning with the fourth verse. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had a pretty good, good self-image. Um, I don't think that anyone accused him of, of having an ego, um, a, a slighted ego. He really uh, had all of the credentials that one could possibly want as, as someone who's very urbane, but also someone who is of great religious devotion. He had the perfect resume. And he didn't even have to lie. I remember back in the, um, just a couple years ago when George O'Leary, who was coaching Georgia Tech, got the gig at Notre Dame, and then uh, they ended up not hiring him uh, because he lied on his resume. 
And it was just like a little like he said that he had a degree from a university that he didn't have. And uh, I think my man had forgotten about the Internet um, or telephones um, or the mail service. I don't know. But there is inside all of us this propensity to want to make ourselves look a whole lot better than we actually are, even to the point of, of lying. Uh, but when you put together a resume, um, and everyone says always keep your, uh, your resumes updated, um, but you know how you're supposed to write your position and then a blurb about it, like uh, integrated facility maintenance in order to have things run more efficiently according to NASA principles. And like, well, what did you do? I was a busboy. Um, LAUGHTER uh, I mean, we're, we're, and you have people out there who, who try to say, okay, that's what you did, but let's make it sound like this. Why? Because you want someone to look at your resume and think, this person is awesome. Now, you may be awesome. Just objectively speaking, you may be awesome. But all of us, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our resumes, they normally make us look a lot better than we are. Uh, maybe even a little better uh, than we are, but they make us look better than we really are. And... Um, and we hope that people believe them. Now, Paul has this resume, though, that he doesn't have to inflate at all. He was born to the right people at the right time. And so the, he, he starts out general and says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, every male Jewish child is supposed to be circumcised. But I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then I am a Pharisee, which means a particular party within Judaism that was zealous for the law. Uh, who were the people that uh, Jesus really got their goat? The Pharisees, right? So Paul already had a bone to pick with Jesus, and now he has literally a bone to pick with the Christians. And, uh, and then he goes so far as to say, now maybe this is a little bit of inflation, uh, but as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yeah, right. Blameless? Can any of us really say that we are blameless under the law? Well, most Pharisees would. Most Pharisees would say, yes, I'm blameless under the law. I keep the outer law, and that's why Jesus said, you whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you're beautiful, and you're, you're whitewashed, and you're perfect, but inside, you're all rot and bone. And most of us, I think, even those, all of us are a little bit like that. Whitewashed sepulchers that outside we project a very healthy image of who we are. Uh, but if we're honest with ourselves, inside doesn't match the outside. And Jesus said, it, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. And that's certainly true. I mean, I find myself apologizing a lot for the things that I say, especially to loved ones especially to loved ones. And, uh, and I have a family that's very big on, well, aren't you supposed to be a minister? I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be. Um, uh, um, uh, whatever it, it might be. And they're saying that and it, and because uh, sometimes my family, I mean, in order to be heard in our family, you have to yell, which was a real introduction for Lauren. And she'd sort of like, why are you fighting? Like, we're not fighting, we're talking. And she's like, no. Oh. So, I mean, and, and understandably so. I mean, because we shouldn't talk to one another that way. And I've told I mean, just growing up in our house, no, you know, never say you're sorry. Never say you're sorry. And if we did say sorry, you know, I'm sorry you don't have a sense of humor. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry your feelings are hurt. Ugh. Um, 
And, and so, you know, getting into the real world, though, and, and being around people, especially people that you love that are not your immediate family, uh, you realize uh, that you're, all, you're not all that, that you are meant to be. In the world in which we live in, it used to be much easier to keep that stuff behind the curtain, and now it's on display for, for everybody to see. I wrote in an adventurer, uh, I guess a month or so ago, uh, that I'm going to go to jail soon. One day uh, I'll go to jail for something that they found out about me that I've done that's really not that bad but will be so embarrassing they'll just throw me in jail. Uh, things like the fact that you know I pushed my child down on the sidewalk and, and scratched her face up. Uh, and even, you know, it was, it was sort of bad talking to the teacher about that because, of course, the teacher asked, you know, what Lily said that you pushed her down on the sidewalk. And I could see her with her hand on her phone on, like, the speed dial. For, and, like, she, and I said, yeah, we were, I, I pushed her down, but we were playing leapfrog, and she kind of reared out. Like, I mean, I had this excuse, but at the same time, I knew I was the dad that pushed the child down, and now she has this huge, and I'm thinking, like, there's going to be a scar there for the rest of her life to remind me of uh, how bad a dad I am, and she'll bring it up all the time, like, I would have gotten married by now, Dad, if you hadn't done this. <laughs> I'm 22. Just kidding. So, um, so Paul is going merrily on his way and totally confident in who he is, even though he's not terribly self-aware of the fact. But you know, I mean, something, I, I wish that, that we had had a little bit of a testimony. We get a little bit of it. But what was going on in Saul's mind and in Saul's heart between the stoning of Stephen and the Damascus Road experience? Now, God came totally from the outside and intervened in his life. Uh, and in an instant, his, something like scales fell from his eyes. Um, but it's amazing that there are people who can go through life with something like scales on their eyes, and they actually can't see reality for what it is. So if you've ever been in, in a conversation with somebody, and they're just, in, uh, one of the things that uh, someone was telling me, they're like, I get very frustrated in talking to my friends about whatever issue it is of the day and trying to give a Christian perspective on it, and it's like they're not hearing me. And I said, well, that's because they're not. They're not. They can't, they can't hear with spiritual ears because God hasn't intervened uh, in their lives. And so for them, they're, they're, not, they're not going to hear it. What it requires is God to intervene and really demolish any sense of identity that they have uh, in their lives. Paul Zoll did a really wonderful series here at the Advent a couple years back on um, more than that now, what, 10 plus, um, did a series on identity and the whole premise of it. And it, I can, I listen, it's very funny because I listened to it and, and, uh, and now I actually was able to meet you people uh, when I would hear your very angry questions directed toward him. Uh, um, but Paul's whole hypothesis through the thing was, um, if there is such a thing as identity, it's worthy of damnation. And that's a strong statement. If there is such a thing as identity, it's worthy of damnation. And... As strong as that is, that's actually what St. Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 about his own identity. Because he continues on, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And the language that this the English Standard Version uses is very light compared to what St. Paul is actually saying. When he says, I compare, compare it as loss, the actual Greek, uh, some, some of the older translations say refuse, but it's a four-letter word. I think you know what word I'm talking about. 
And that's the word that Paul, he says, compared to what I have in Jesus Christ and compared to who I thought I was, that stuff is that. That's really what it amounts to. A big, heaping, steaming pile of that. Right? That's not attractive. Right? But when you become a Christian, your eyes are open and you're able to see a thing for what it is and you're finally able to comprehend, like when it comes to resumes and stuff like that, that stuff is for the birds. Because think about, you know, one of the things that I realized when Lauren and I were doing resumes is that Lauren's resume is a whole lot better than mine uh, because all the things she puts on her resume, it's just my job. So I can't be like, I volunteered for the church bazaar. Because it's like, that's what you do. Uh, I, I mean, so my resume is actually very small and slight, so I just make things up like George O'Leary. Not degrees, but just other things. Extracurriculars. Uh, so, um, did you know I'm a triathlete? So, um, um, so, and even if you do, I mean, think about, I mean, I, I think about this a lot, actually. When you're applying to college, all the work that you did in high school in order to apply to college, building your resume, like, who puts on the resume when they're applying for a job that they were in the high school, uh, you know, a cappella group? Or, I mean, I mean who puts those extra curriculum? No, because the moment that you get into college, your high school resume, all that you work for is now worthless. Right? And so then in college, you just started having to build the resume again. And then when you finally get the job, like the fact that you were in the Virginia Glee Club or that you were, although president of the student body is not bad, but I mean, things like that. But as you get older and as you move through your career path, like even that stuff, you realize which once had sparkle and finish, totally falls off. And it would be ridiculous to put it on your resume. And when it comes to our identity and who we are, we have to be more than the sum of that. Otherwise, our lives are a big steaming pile of something. And so that's what St. Paul is saying, is that if you are going to make it in this world, if you are going to come through the world with some sort of confidence, your life has to be anchored in something other than yourself. Namely, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you turn out to be like Saul of Tarsus. Because what is Saul's MO as he's persecuting the church? I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself that I'm the most devout. I'm uh, the, the biggest go-getter. I mean, so zealous am I that I'm actually, you know, you people who are persecuting these Christian heretics who believe in this guy, Jesus, who they say has been raised from the dead, uh, y'all are fine to throw stones but let me tell you, I'm willing to go into Damascus, into people's homes, and grab them and bring them back. What do you have to say about that? Right? He gets the varsity letter. Right? He, he's, he's, he is an example to those who are persecuting the church. It may be, uh, and I found this to be true, that a lot of people who do get caught up and resumes and things like that, um, God has a way of working on them to open their eyes to who they are and who God is, uh, simply because, um, just objectively speaking, they are able to see uh, that their lives are not just the sum of their resumes, but even if they were to tally those things up, uh, it really doesn't explain uh, who they are, who they are. And even if we were to use labels as to who we are, like for Saul, he would say, I am a Greek-speaking Jew 
born in a cosmopolitan city on the Mediterranean in modern-day Turkey, and um, uh, tribe of Benjamin, and, and I'm a Pharisee. So what? What does that actually mean? So even in our culture, when we say, like, we all attribute certain things to identity, but even if you were to say, okay, Andrew, you are a white Protestant male. Now, that has certain connotations in the culture, but what the heck does that mean? Is that really who I am? I mean, is that how we relate to one another, where we say, well, this person, uh, I mean, I do it. Like, when I see someone, I'm like, they drive a Buick, right? Uh, so I say that because Lauren drives a Buick, but... Uh, or, or they drive this kind of car. I mean, I, you know, I use the Third Avenue example all the time because I love it when you're in the, in the middle lane and you don't want to let anyone merge in because that's your lane and they know the rules. They get to the back of the line and, of course, a car goes zooming by because they think that they're going to, you know, cut. and when it's a BMW, there's a sense of satisfaction. Like, I knew it was a BMW. It's always a BMW uh, that goes flying out there. You know, you never see a Ford pickup truck do that, right? You just don't. And so that's why people who drive Ford pickup trucks are more lovable um, and better friends. Uh, now, of course, how ridiculous is that? But that is how we operate in the world. That's how we think. We look at somebody's car. We look at the clothes they wear. We look at their neighborhoods. And we think that we've got them pegged. And yet... When it's all stripped away, we're all in the same boat. The same things that wake you up in the middle of the night are the same things that wake somebody else up on the other side of town in the middle of the night. The same struggles that they have are the same struggles that you have. Now, they may, may manifest themselves in different ways, uh, but uh, that's why later on in life, St. Paul could say that he was the chief of sinners, of which he was the worst. He actually was able to get some perspective and realize it's not that maybe I'm a little bit better than they were, but I was the worst. I was the absolute worst in thinking that I was the sum of my deeds uh, in, in my own life. And also, the, I mean, with St. Paul, and you see this a lot in the culture, is that people are judged based on their amount of sincerity. Um, I meet a lot of people who are sincerely wrong. Uh, and, uh, and no amount of the ferverness, you know, the fervency of their belief or, or how passionate they are. In fact, normally the more passionate they are about it, the more I'm thinking, this person's nuts. You know, and it's always over something very, I'm always amazed by the things that people get, you know, what the tripwires are for certain people, um, where they get really bent out of shape about it. But like when, when the lights go on and they're just sort of, I mean, it's, you re, like almost immediately, that, you know that's where they're putting their eggs, right, in that basket, whatever it is. Now, you may just be like my family where you're just like, let's just rumble about everything. Like, let's just talk about, like, whether, whether we should have nuts in a sweet potato casserole next year. Like, we will fight about those kinds of things. Uh, but I'm talking about the bigger issues in life and, uh, and, and the things that normally would be, uh, those things that are idols uh, in our lives, and we're all prone uh, to get sucked into those things, uh, but the passion and intensity uh, that you see in Paul's life after his conversion is for Jesus and the gospel. Right? That's something to be fervent about. That's something to be passionate about. Uh, and he tends not to get that bent out of shape about things that don't have significance, things that don't really, at the end of the day, will mean anything. At the end of the day, God is going to work it all out and it's going to set it to rights. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't get bent out of shape about stuff uh, because he does. Just read Galatians. 
that letter is about one issue where the church is getting it wrong and Paul says, I've got to talk about this. And he does. And he actually calls people out by name, like Peter. Wouldn't that stink to get a letter from Paul and your name is mentioned? You're like, ah. Oh. Um, and yet, <clears throat> and yet, uh, sincerity, uh, I don't necessarily think that sincerity and certainty are the same things, uh, but the amount of defensiveness in which we have, I think, is proportional to the trust that we have in God. Always be ready for a reason for the hope that you have within you. Uh, but the moment that you get so immersed in a fight, even if it's about particular things, I mean, I have really gone toe-to-toe with some people over spiritual issues, and there are times where I'm like, I've got to do this because there are other people around us listening, and, and they can't be the only voice speaking. Uh, but then there are sometimes where I find myself just getting so emotionally entangled in it, and I just realize, like, all it's going to leave both parts is angry. And, and I'm not going to argue this people, person into believing in Jesus, and they're certainly not going to argue into me. And at the end of the day, God's going to sort that person out. One way or the other, God is going to sort, sort them out, and their eyes will be open to the truth of things. And I'm not talking about, again, peripheral issues. I'm talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is, and, and what, he's, what he has done. The other thing about St. Paul that I'll bring up before we wrap up is that the St. Pauls of the world, the Sauls of the world that you know only too well, you in fact may be one. Um, if you had a top ten list of top ten people most likely to never become a Christian, he would have been number one. Right? And that was the response of the church. He's a Christian? What? Uh, and there are all kinds of people in our lives where we think that person will never become a Christian. In fact, that person is an enemy of the church. He's an enemy of the cross. And there's no way in the world in which they'll become a Christian. And in fact, if they become a Christian, I don't want to run into them in heaven. I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm on the other side of town. Like, I'm going to figure it out. But like, I don't want to, I don't want to be with them. And yet here we see that um, God can literally reach down in someone's life and like that turn their hearts. So one, that's a testimony of just how powerful God is. Right? Nobody is a, like, God doesn't come down by the power of his Holy Spirit and intervene in Saul's life and say, now Saul, I'd like to talk to you about... And then Saul's saying, well, I don't believe in Jesus. I mean, God doesn't ask him. God just does it. You know? and, and so he falls off the horse. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And something like scales uh, fall from his eyes. He beholds the Lord Jesus. And uh, can you imagine the emotion in that? I, at first, I would think, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> or, oops. <laughs> you know, huh? uh, and, and yet, uh, in that moment, he's a believer in the Lord Jesus. And so, nobody is ever too far gone. Ever too far gone from being a Christian. You can't be too far off. You can't be at a place intellectually. You can't be at a place geographically. Uh, you can't be at a place in your own life where you are beyond the reach of God. Now what we see in the church in Acts as well is the fact that the church, even though it doesn't say it, but you know it's true, they're praying for Saul. They're praying. I was uh, in that same meeting uh, that I talked about when they were talking about uh, Janani Lewum dying and about Feste Karinji um, uh, telling the story of uh, Lewum's martyrdom. When they were telling the story uh, of that, I was, I was brought to tears by that story, but I was really, uh, something that stuck with me at the end of that meeting, we had a prayer time. 
and we were talking, and in that prayer, somebody saying, Lord, we pray for those who persecute your church, convert them or kill them. And I kind of opened up one eye, and I was just like, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty intense. Um, but what I didn't, what the perspective that I lacked at that moment is that um, while they're praying in that room, in a place in western North Carolina, up in the mountains outside of Asheville, uh, their family is back in northern Nigeria uh, with the fear that their child might walk to school and not, not come home that day. Um, and so whatever it takes to thwart that, whether preferably God would change their hearts, uh, but God would do something uh, to thwart them. And uh, so praying for your enemies, I won't tell you how to pray for them, but uh, praying for your enemies uh, is something that the Lord commands us to do, uh, and it is not without effect. And we see this in the life of Paul. And so we've painted a little bit of a picture uh, of St. Paul uh, today, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week uh, because Simon the Magician shows up, uh, which is very kind of a funny story, and then Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and then Saul's conversion. Questions, comments, concerns? If you're a resume writer, I'm very sorry. I just apologize. Well, I just confess that I was in an argument with my family and their friends and, and over Christianity, and they they were really struck by the idea that there are no good people. Yeah, that's the kiss of death. And then and then you're like, well, then let's talk about free will, and uh, and that really gets it going. Um, but yeah, I mean, nobody's good except God. Uh, but but yeah, the the sort of understanding that we're we're all basically good people, which is not to be confused with the notion that that we're all the worst, pe- that, that we're all going to go out and do really terrible things. That's not what the doctrine says. The doctrine just basically says that we're born self-interested. And if that weren't true, why would you put little protectors over the light sockets so that my child doesn't put my car keys in it? Can, can we ever be, um, have the burden of our identity No, I mean just just today. I won't. I don't think this person's in here. I hope not. But if it is you, I still love you. But um, uh, this morning we, I preached a full sermon. We got Joe Gibbs commissioned. We communed everybody in the church and still got out at 10:02. And I came out of the church thinking, did it. We made it happen. We're going to get to Sunday school time and somebody came by and like just as I'm thinking that said, two minutes over. <laughs> so no, I mean it, it never, it never, and it's not just the culture, it's the human heart. Like I love, I love getting caught doing good things or, or I mean who doesn't? Who doesn't? Like, can I, is, well I'm just going to go ahead and call her out. Where is he? Is Julie Goyer, Julie Goyer, are you here? <laughs> can I tell the Starbucks story? The story, the paying it forward story. Can I tell that? Yeah. So Julie Goyer is the the, the the best parishioner at the Advent. <laughs> Julie Goyer was at Starbucks and she got up with her with her like medium size whatever it was, you know, just running the little coffee and she went to pay and the person said, "Oh, well, the person in front of you paid for your coffee." 
And Julie said, that's the nicest thing in the world. Well, gosh, I'll, I'll pay for the person behind me. And it was like a $15 cup of coffee or something like that. And she was like, that's a great story. But that's just it. Like, I mean, I... Um, you know, I mean, it, there's no, there's no way, and so that's why it's a constant. And why, I mean, Paul of all people fell into this trap. It's just a constant putting Jesus before you all the time. Right? Look at him. Look at your identity in him. Look at what he's done for you. Because, as the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. We're going to go off the reservation, and um, but you got to stick close to the cross. And the only way to do that is to have that. Have the person and work of Jesus ever before you. Sis. I have a lot of trouble with Paul. Um, maybe you'll get into this later, but for instance, uh, Ephesians, uh, particularly women submit to your mm-hmm. husbands and all that jazz. Yeah, I, actually, I will say something about that right now. Um, I was talking to a husband and wife couple, and they actually came and they said, we want to do the 28th prayer book service which actually has obey your husband uh, in, in, the, in the vows. And that's the way it had been for 500 years um, almost and, um, until, well, yeah, until 1979. But um, we were talking, and I was like, well, it's very curious that you would, you would pick that. Tell me why. And it was because of that vow. And I said, well, what do you mean? And the wife actually said, or the wife-to-be said, um, well, look at what he has. So when, when the when the husband puts the ring on the wife's finger, he says, <clears throat> with this ring I thee wed, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, and with my body I thee worship. And she said, if he's going to worship the ground I walk in, I'll obey him any day. <laughs> and I thought that was, that was good. Very wise. Well, I would say, we'll get into, some, it's a mutual submission, but we'll talk about what that looks like. Uh, when we do Ephesians in 2020. (laughs) All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.